This is Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome to this week's episode of the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs, the podcast where I explore what schools are for. You can listen to this on Fridays or as a podcast on Spotify and other platforms. This week, my guest is Professor Tom Dobson, the Professor of Education at York St. John's University. Among many publications and research and supervision of PhD students, this week we're going to discuss his research into the role of artists and teachers and their perception of the role of teaching as we look at his research paper on growing and fixing, comparing the creative mindsets of teachers and artist practitioners, thinking skills and creativity. A fascinating discussion. I hope you enjoy it. This is Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in with Teachers Talk Radio. And we're back with my guest this week. Again, it's Tom Dobson, Professor of uh, Education at York St. John University. So, Tom, thanks and welcome for, welcome to the show. Welcome to Teachers Talk Radio, the Friday morning break, where I'm exploring what schools are for. So let's hope we'll, we'll get somewhere on that. That's fantastic. No, thanks for inviting me along. That's great. So as my, uh, as my listeners will know, uh, what I'm doing really is, having retired from a long career in teaching, I now explore what schools are for and so on. And so I look for people who have done some interesting research and that you come under that category because I came across something you'd done on creativity. And the paper I read was um, comparing creative mindsets of teachers and artist, artist practitioners. And I thought, when, as soon as I, I thought, that sounds interesting. But when I read it, it was even more interesting, not only because of the way you'd done it, but because of some of the conclusions you arrived at. So what led you in the direction of that? And what other, we can discuss what other research you've done as well. Yeah, I mean, I suppose f- f- uh, for the last um, 15 years, really, John, I've been interested in creativity and creativity within educational settings. Just to contextualise the recent paper uh, that was published in Creativity and Thinking Skills two weeks ago, the one you're referring to, that was actually um, uh, led by um, one of my students at the time. She was a master's student. I was her supervisor um, and she was interested in creative mindsets. So that's the way in which uh, you might conceptualize creativity. So I was her supervisor. Then I've worked with her on developing the paper for publication. So that's Lucy Fleet, who's actually now doing her, her PGCE. So she was a, um, Lucy was previously an artist practitioner who worked in schools. She did a master's and now she's training to be a teacher. Um, and what Lucy was really interested in was whether or not artists who work in schools, and we call those artist practitioners, um, conceptualised creativity differently um, from uh, teachers. Um, So it's to compare the way in which those two groups conceptualise creativity. Um, So she did this through um, conducting a survey using the creative mindset scales, uh, which are uh, have been validated and been used for for a number of years now, and she gave them she she obviously administered the uh, the scales to those two participant groups, and she noticed something quite interesting about the way that teachers and artists differently conceptualise 
um, creativity. And I think the creative mindset scale contrasts two different views of creative mindsets. So just to give you a bit more information about the creative uh, mindset scales, they explore whether whether respondents think about um, creativity um, as fixed, as something that's innate within a child, um, within a school context, or something that is malleable and can be nurtured and can grow. So it's kind of like the nature-nurture divide. Now, um, both, both groups, perhaps unsurprisingly, so that's teachers and artist practitioners who work in schools, um, both groups felt that um, children had growth creative mindsets. And, you know, we weren't necessarily surprised by, by that finding. But the interesting thing was that teachers tended, were tended to be polarised in their views. So they believed that, that um, children, sorry, they, they held growth creative mindsets and they believed that um, creativity could be nurtured and was malleable um, for children. But at the same time, um, they rejected a fixed creative mindset. So they rejected the idea of children um, having innate talents or being gifted in particular areas. So it's kind of a polarised view. Artist practitioners, on the other hand, tended to feel that those two could coexist. So they weren't part of a, a spectrum. They weren't mutually exclusive. So artist practitioners tended to think that uh, hold a growth creative mindset and believe that all children could be nurtured to be um, creative. And there was that malleability. Um, but at the, at the same time, uh, coexisting with that, they also uh, tended towards um, fixed creative mindsets. So the belief that some, so that some children would have specific talents in certain areas, other children would have specific talents in other areas. Um, so that was quite interesting. So the teacher's conceptualization of, of creativity tended to be polarized. The artist's um, con conceptualization of creativity tended to be a bit more complex. The conclusion in a sense is that the teachers can learn from the artists. This, this wasn't, this wasn't, a, this conclusion that it arrives at was, was not a good thing in a sense that the, that something had happened in teaching or something was happening in teaching to the conditions and the attitudes and the culture of schools that was not conducive to a kind of creativity that that the artist can can see and can do. I, even though there are plenty of teachers who were, who were artists, are artists and are artists who are teachers, but there was a divide in the way they thought about this. And this, this polarised view of creativity was was not good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I well, uh, or perhaps a little, a, a little simplistic. I mean, I, I think one of the through the interviews, something that um, Lucy um, noticed in the way that so as well as the survey, she did some interviews with some um, teachers and some artists. One of the things she noticed was the teachers tended to talk about the fact that growth mindsets as a popularized sort of theoretical concept within school tend tended to be mandated so therefore um, teachers in schools had no choice other than to adopt a growth mindset approach and a growth mindset approach of course is a great is a great approach to adopt but with that didn't necessarily um, come a depth of understanding about uh, what that might mean in terms of individual children and meeting their needs and what that might mean in terms of pedagogy. Rather, it was enforced by senior leadership teams who had adopted 
that mantra. So it goes back to the work of Carol Dweck, who first did the research in that area, and it's been popularised and adopted by schools ever since. Well, that also raises another thought in my mind, which is that research that can be quite complex, as you say, Carol Dweck's idea of the growth mindset, which is a very positive idea, when it filters down into the schools, becomes a very simplistic idea in the sense that it becomes like a lot of pieces of research an understanding of the complexity of human learning. In the school, it appears as a laminated wall poster uh, imploring on the students to be uh, have a growth mindset, which simply then becomes another way in which the students can fail, a kind of meta-failure. So you, uh, you, 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 you now aren't particularly successful in this particular subject, it, the reason isn't be, the reason is because you have failed to adopt an understanding of your own learning through a growth mindset. That appears to me to be to raise the issue of of how research appears in schools when it becomes simplistic. So it can it can do more harm than good. Uh, so how did this contrast with the way the artists viewed creativity and growth as opposed to fixed mindsets? In terms of the survey and the interviews. There were artists, artists, practitioners from different arts backgrounds. So we're talking, you know, creative writers, visual artists, expressive artists, people working in drama, performance, that that kind of thing. Whilst holding that growth mindset, they they also, um, perhaps through the fact that they had practiced a particular art form um as part of you know as part of their identity as part of their job as part of their employment they recognized actually that there was something there that might be innate as well that might be that might be leaning towards um a talent and i think you know there's an implication there in terms of those different conceptualizations that actually it would be good if more artists could get into schools and work with teachers around um creativity and around developing children's creativity and, and and the research on that john is is quite clear that it, it can't be tokenistic it can't just be uh, an inset day it's something that would need to happen over time and obviously there are funding uh, issues um with that and the arts arts funding is is really tricky within the the, the current context so i think i think that's that that that's one thing that really came to the surface um with that was the need for was the need for that dialogue between between teachers and artist practitioners this program has been brought to you by the happy confident company our clinically approved ready to go well-being and mental health program will help your pupils thrive in only 10 minutes a day you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and well-being tools throughout your school to find out more visit us at www happyconfident.com You are listening to the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs. My guest this week, Professor Tom Dobson of York St. John's University. We are discussing research into creativity in schools. Drama PGC, P, 
PGC at uh, Sussex University. She was talking to me about uh, how in the day, not, not so long ago, before the, the years of austerity and cutbacks in education and so on, it would have been more common to have artists in school, artists in residence. And I remember having, I said, when I first started teaching, I'm going back now 30 odd years ago, and they said, to, well, John, have you met the, uh, the school poet? And the school poet was a poet in residence in the school. And this, this was altogether more common uh, than, it, than it is now. So some, some of the, some of the, there's been a, some, some extent a disappearance of the artist in residence from, from schools. I don't know, but that's, that, would, that would seem to be, from what your research is showing, really quite a shame. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think the danger is that, let's say, if you, I think the growth mindset is great. Absolutely, that's the right sort of position to come for, um, from to, you know, allow all children access to creativity. But I think there is an aspect to creativity which, um, which can be taught. Um, so my my area where I've done most of my research is around creative writing, and I think what we acknowledge there is is pedagogically a balance between structure and freedom, uh, between allow, allowing children to express themselves and draw on their own experiences and transform those in creative writing in in the context that, that I'm I'm talking about there, but also structure and teaching a particular craft, um, and obviously identity. So. It, in order to do both of those, I think it's really important to understand where the children are in terms of in terms of their creativity, where they are in terms of their, um, their their development, in order to be able to meet their needs and provide the appropriate environment and 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 scaffolding to 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 move them forward. And I think the danger is if you just hold a growth creative mindset, um, is that you might not be able to think about meeting the individual needs of that of that child so in that sense a creative or rather a growth mindset can almost be inflexible i remember teaching in the united states for a while i taught in an american high school and there was a dominant belief in the infinite possibilities of every student which was very very good i mean a very positive sense in which every student was capable of just about anything but of course that became rigid if you try to identify within students certain innate skills or abilities that they might possess and respond to those, that's, that appears to be what you're saying. An intolerance towards innate ability, because you might fear that it becomes deterministic, uh, doesn't allow you to respond to the individual child. I mean, it's something that I'm working on with a colleague from Goldsmiths um, University, uh, Francis Gilbert. We think we're looking in particular at providing feedback on creative writing within a, within a school context. And our basic argument is that feedback is crucial for children to develop as creative writers, but giving feedback is really skillful because it involves understanding what the child is trying to, to say, appreciating what the child is um, trying to say, valuing it, but also thinking about what the next steps might be in order to improve and redraft that writing. So it's not just a, a completely open approach; it is targeted and focused. And I think the you know the way that the artist practitioners in this study, uh, the majority of them, held both growth mindsets and fixed mindsets simultaneously. So they weren't um, part of a spectrum, which I think for the teachers it appeared to be part of a spectrum the more you moved away from the fixed mindsets you move away from the fixed mindset towards growth mindset so they become mutually exclusive here 
um, with the artist practitioners they seem to um, they seem, seem to coexist and I think that 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 is a good thing so yeah teachers definitely can learn from artist practitioners I, I chaired an event um, for um, a company called government events last year and they had uh, they had advocates from a number of primary and secondary schools in England as well as someone from the Arts Council and some of those schools did had, had managed to get the funding to bring artists in residence in actually we, we had a presentation there from an artist in resident who, who who talked passionately about the work and the impact that it had that it has had so it's it does happen in some instances but <clears throat> from what I can work out that you know the funding funding for that is scarce it's heavily bureaucratic and crucially it's not available to all well that was another point that some of my previous guests drew attention to was of course funding and the context of funding in schools not just the long years of austerity from 2008 onwards and the restrictions on 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 funding for schools but also the sense in which funding for things that were considered extra that were considered luxuries tended to disproportionately affect those schools whose emphasis was on exam success because they felt themselves in a competitive environment and also because that was their way of sort of justifying bang for the buck, you know, of spending money. Whereas there was a sort of reality gap that all schools will will emphasise the creativity and the the national curriculum is very clear on, on the whole child and developing a broad range of of skills and abilities and attitudes to life and so on and and the and creativity is seen as important and yet often becomes the easiest thing to cut in terms of those extras those visits to art galleries those visits to museums those insets with external speakers and so on i'm also working on a european project which is coming to an end now it's funded by erasmus so it's coming to an end because of the of brexit as well and and that and that's been quite interesting because it's it's enabled us to work with partners from Greece, Italy, Germany, Austria and Iceland um, and think about creativity in schools in those contexts and the starting point the reason we got funding was was that recognition that actually creativity is important in terms of um, student engagement and preventing early school leaving um, so that was you know one of the, the the key reasons for Erasmus funding this project and we've been working with teachers in, in, in all of those um, countries in all of those contexts and young people to develop um, resources and activities that um, teachers can use to promote creativity through the creative arts um, so those those resources are, are open access and they're available on the ArtEd website if anyone's um, interested but the the interesting thing was when we were looking at the policy context in all of those countries it was very similar insofar as creativity wasn't really valued in key policy documents like national curriculum for example funding f- for the arts was something that as, as I mentioned before was 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 bureaucratic and was quite scarce the exception to that was Iceland um, which you you might have you might have hazarded hazarded a guess at, at that insofar as creativity is one of their pillars um, of education in their curriculum document 
Um, and what they really champion is the idea of arts for all, um, which, um, yes, yeah, so is a completely different situation to a lot of other um, European countries. Is there another context besides funding which shapes the way schools view the creative arts? And that is simply the utility effect, uh, the advantages to the economy. Schools should be serving the skills that we're lacking, whether it's teaching students mathematics until they're 18, as Rishi Sunak suggested, or whether it's uh, producing more engineers or plumbers or, or doctors. And with all very laudable aims and ambitions, but they also are part of a, a neoliberalist view that schools are in competition with each other, as we mentioned before, but also that schools should serve those things which produce wealth and produce economic success. And we have to have a view that that has some utility to it in order to value the arts. And, or, or maybe that's also self-defeating, in that if you simply view artistic creativity as not art for art's sake or beauty for beauty's sake or the pursuit of truth or anything lofty like that, but simply uh, let's produce more artists because the music industry or the theatre industry or the artistic exports of this country or the service industries are served best by creative people, well, that may itself be sort of self-defeating or produce a particular kind of attitude to the arts. Um, as 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 a necessity to be productive. Yeah, I mean, interestingly, the the organisation for for um, economic development, the OECD, which looks at uh, policy, educational policy, in forty countries globally, they're they're kind of championing um, championing creativity at the moment through their Learning Compass twenty thirty. So I think I mean they've been criticised historically for having quite narrow definitions of what good education looks like and for comparing countries on things like literacy and numeracy. I think over the past five or six years they've been more interested in creativity, in problem solving, individual problem solving and collective problem solving and now they're interested in agency, creative skills and I suppose trying to bridge that gap between what what happens at school, which tends to be a knowledge-driven curriculum, and the skills that the skills and attributes and competencies that children need for the workplace. Okay, so there, I take your point. So, so with with the OECD, the the driver is economic. Uh, it's part of that that wider neoliberal picture. But in a way, I see that as an opportunity because if if those organisations of neoliberalism like the OECD are championing um, creativity, then it's an opportunity for policy reform, which I think is, you know, greatly needed. It's been 10 years plus since we've had um, any changes to the national curriculum uh, in, in in England. Uh, and the national curriculum is 100% uh, knowledge based. And it's really, really prescriptive. Creativity just doesn't appear there and other competencies and, and skills that would be valued by employers from a sort of um, economic perspective like like being self-regulated in, in your learning just just don't don't exist either so I, I think this this neoliberal movement towards um, embracing creativity again and I think it has been embraced before we get these kind of cycles 
in, in policy is something that um, could be harnessed and made the most of, and it could lead to more interesting uh, pedagogical approaches being taking place within the classroom and children being able to express themselves and 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 and, the, and then some of the other benefits of creativity that you were alluding to there John will, will come into play because you know uh, I think being creative is something that's essential uh, to being human um, I think being creative is is is, is aligned with um, well-being and there's so much research that that, that will point to that so yeah, and again, I, and, and therefore, I wouldn't see the two as mutually exclusive. I think, you know, if 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 the driver is economics, if it is instrumental and utilitarian, as you say, then I think it doesn't mean that it, its implementation needs to just be about that. I know what the OECD is doing at the moment is they're looking for uh, case studies um, of good practice, which promotes. Um, critical thinking amongst students, creative thinking amongst students, and the key word that they're using is agency. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the article that, that uh, I've had published the, um, with, with Lucy, um, Lucy chose to think about the creative mindsets of artists, practitioners and teachers and do that camp comparison. But really, the article is about creativity beyond just the creative arts. You know, it's about creative thinking skills. So that would include the STEM subjects as well. And I think that, that there are so many different um, things that could be done with the STEM subjects to promote creativity as well. Interestingly, as part of research for another project, I looked at uh, other sort of um, countries' policies um, around creativity and um, Singapore utilised project-based learning. I know within um, within England, this has kind of been criticized and not received well um, by schools but but project-based learning has been used effectively in in Singapore to promote creativity uh, amongst children with STEM subjects to allow children to develop their own projects identify a problem with in society and then transform transform their local community in some way so it's empowering its agency it's everything the OECD are looking at. I did, I did a bit of research, which is going to be um, probably published next week, looking at the benefits of using um, project-based learning for young people. So it's a literature review. So it's looking at a range of evidence. Interestingly, most of the um, evidence that I found came from the US, where I think there are whole swathes of school, uh, particularly on the East Coast and West Coast, that um, that use project-based learning and, and, and some which also use youth participatory action research, which is quite very similar to project-based learning. So both are student-driven. The students identify a problem and a project that they want to do and both are community-facing. So both involve working in lo local communities to, to transform that community in some way. So both involve a lot of um, critical thinking and creative thinking and it's real real life learning as well i think creative arts has its place i think that kind of learning has its place i'm interested in that remark you made about the way in which project-based learning may not be well received and certainly i saw in my career a move away from kind of rich tasks and integrated subjects and towards much more precisely driven national curriculum focused outcomes orientated 
sorts of learning. Are you seeing any evidence that there may be a return to more project learning, not just in places like Singapore, but in, in the UK? I'm partnered with a, an organisation called Inactus UK. They actually funded that that literature review that I've been doing into um, project-based learning and, and youth participatory action research. And they do fantastic work, um, co-curricular work with the secondary schools in disadvantaged areas in England. And what they do is exactly that. They, they enable, they facilitate young people to run their own projects that, that really make a, a, a difference to local communities. And the, the skills, the competencies, the attributes that young people develop through that pro process are immense. And it, they just, it just doesn't happen in mainstream education because of a focus on knowledge, um, a very narrow curriculum, and because of the, the, you know, the testing regime um, that is in place. Yeah. It's time for a fresh start to language learning. Pearson Edexcel's new student-centred French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs cater to the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying. Rooted in learned language knowledge, their assessments are transparent and accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills. Through inclusive and relatable content, the new Pearson Edexcel MFL GCSEs build a shared cultural capital that helps students develop an understanding of and appreciation for the wider world. Find out more at go.pearson.com forward slash MFL GCSE 24. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The BBC reports on the lack of suitable childcare for children with special educational needs and disabilities, particularly over school holidays. The report features data from the charity Quorum which shows that only 1 in 20 councils in England say there is enough childcare for SEND children during school holidays. In some areas, including London and Yorkshire, there were no councils with sufficient childcare available. Parents of children with SEND say that in some cases, they are unable to work because of the lack of suitable childcare in holiday periods. Others express concern at the significant change in routines brought about by having to spend the whole summer at home with parents. Forum conducted similar surveys in Scotland, where no councils reported having enough childcare for children with SEND. Similarly, in Wales, there was a lack of adequate provision, with only 5% of councils saying they had enough suitable places. In a different survey by Contact and the Disabled Children's Partnership, covering 1,800 parents of children with SEND, 9 out of 10 said they were not able to find a suitable holiday club or activity. While there is a legal duty in England for local authorities to make sure there is sufficient childcare available for parents who want to work, up to 14 years and extended to 18 years for parents of disabled children, it does not have to be paid for by the local authority. This means even where childcare can be found, the costs be prohibitive. A spokesperson for the Department of Education said the government is investing £300 million to test new approaches to short respite breaks and that holiday activities and its food programme help children from low-income families over the holidays. 
The Guardian has focused on plans to limit the number of students taking low value degrees in England. A measure the paper says is most likely to hit working class, black, Asian and minority ethnic applicants. Courses that do not have a high proportion of graduates getting a professional job, going on to postgraduate study or starting a business will be capped. Vice-Chancellors say the measure could act as a red flag, putting off students who may feel the course will damage their life chances. The numbers cap is unlikely to affect the bulk of courses offered by Oxbridge or Russell Group universities. The government appears to have moved away from applying minimum entry requirements for school leavers, which had been floated as a way to control student numbers. The changes are unlikely to help improve the financial position of English universities either. They have seen tuition fees frozen at £9,250 per student since 2017. Inflation has eroded the value of fees and many institutions say they now lose money for every UK student. Schools Week reported on the release of SATS results, focusing on the repeat problem faced by many head teachers, actually getting access to them. This was despite government promises that the previous issues had been ironed out. Multiple error messages appeared and when many tried to access the primary assessment gateway, they got messages which included one saying that the system was currently unavailable due to planned maintenance. Last year, schools faced issues with late results, lost scripts and an unanswered helpline. But a lessons learned review in April said robust tests had made sure similar events would not happen this year. Schools Week has previously reported on technical issues which delayed marking by a week and complaints that pay rates have gone down again. Capita has a £107 million contract to deliver the assessments in a seven-year deal which began last year. Meanwhile, other media outlets focused on the attainment results themselves, which show that it remains significantly lower than before Covid and that they've changed little since last year. The proportion of 10 and 11 year olds meeting the government's expected standards in reading, writing and maths combined remained at 59%, the same as in 2022, down from 65% in 2019. Results in reading were down to 73% from 75% in 2022, but this year's paper triggered mass complaints from parents and teachers saying it had left some pupils in tears. This year's cohort had the majority of Year 3 and Year 4 disrupted by the pandemic. Finally, Sky News broadcast a wide-ranging interview with Education Secretary Gillian Keegan. One of the topics covered was absent pupils, with Ms Keegan saying that absence levels were now a crisis. She went on to say that she would pick them up myself when asked the best way to tackle the issue. When questioned as to whether collecting pupils was a good use of school leaders' time, she said, they do have a duty. We all have to play our part. Sometimes you have to go to the home. However, a spokesperson for Number 10 did not repeat Ms Keegan's comments, but did state, different schools will take different approaches. Ms Keegan's comments have been met with derision from many teachers who took to social media to point out that it was just one more thing teachers and school leaders were being asked do. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. 
Hello, this week I'm addressing a problem quite a few teachers have, the dreaded lock screen in the middle of a lesson. We've all experienced it when you're displaying something and the computer decides you're inactive and goes to sleep. I notice this most if you're using digital ink instead of a whiteboard. Well, I may have a way to stop this happening to you. However, it will depend on your school's network settings. You might not be allowed to change the options I'm about to discuss. A quick workaround for this is to see if your display has a freeze button. This will hold whatever's being shown until you unfreeze. Lock screen happens because your computer is trying to save power and also to keep you safe by locking after a specified time of inactivity. If you're going AFK and leaving your computer unattended, press Windows and L. This will lock your machine. Even if this next tip isn't working for you, this will. Never leave your computer unattended and logged in. Windows and L is a good habit to start. Now you can lock your machine at will, you're ready to change the settings to keep it on. We need to go to the display settings. A quick way is to right click on the desktop and select it from the menu. Now select power and sleep. As you're probably always plugged in when teaching, set the two drop down menus under the heading screen and sleep to never when plugged in. Now your screen won't switch off and the machine won't go to sleep to save power when you're plugged in. Remember you will need to manually lock the computer if walking away. I'm Steve Woods and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. You are listening to the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs. My guest this week, Professor Tom Dobson of York St. John's University. And we are discussing research into creativity in schools. Is it possible that the skills and the competences that people who have acquired the cultural capital and acquired the confidence to engage with art creatively um, the, at the moment, two things are mitigating against that. First of all, there's the the budget cuts in schools. There's the, uh, the there's the der- driving teaching to measurable outcomes and so on. Creativity being difficult to measure doesn't often appear as a measurably uh, measurable outcome. And the other is that much as as we were saying, much of the cultural capital confidence is acquired in schools with the time and the space and the uh, availability of artists and art galleries and the access to art galleries. I was thinking a few years ago, uh, in the t- I lived near the town of Milton Keynes, and in Milton Keynes, they uh, opened a new art gallery, a modern art gallery, uh, contemporary art gallery, I should say. And it was in a sense a way of rebranding the town away from its image of a, a place with limited cultural attributes. Now it had an art gallery. In that art gallery, they, they, after a number of years, carried out some market research, as you might, and they looked at the number of people who came through the doors and the types of people who came through the doors. And uh, the, the, search, the, the research showed a direct correlation between certain housing areas in the town and people who went to the art gallery and certain housing areas in the town where people didn't go to the art gallery. And the observation was very straightforwardly that it was uh, socioeconomic in relationship that poorer people tended not to go to the art gallery. They carried out some research to find out why this was. And of course, what they discover was that people who didn't go in the art gallery thought that it wasn't for them. It wasn't for them. If they went in the art gallery, they would be out of place. They wouldn't know what to say. They wouldn't have the right language skills to deal with the art. They would feel that they was it wasn't produced for them. 
Yeah, no, I think I, th- I think you're spot on uh, with that, particularly uh, in England. I think there are barriers that exist between communities and cultural organisations um, like art galleries, um, theatres. Um, and how do you break that down? Well, it, you know, it's it's really it's really difficult. Um, projects, a project that I'm, I'm I'm just starting to work on with colleagues at York St John is looking at trying to work with parents and their children um, together um, with um, creative writing again. So um, uh, encouraging parents to write creatively and then writing creatively with their children. And we're, um, we're thinking about where to host those sessions. We, we acknowledge that perhaps um, a school um, environment is potentially problematic as a lot of parents, particularly from in socially disadvantaged areas, uh, perhaps wouldn't feel um, safe within that particular um, context. So we're, we're looking at hosting them probably more in a, a community setting. Uh, but I think it's about building building up a relationship with um, parent groups, with community groups, and working with them rather than asking them to come somewhere that is quite alien to them, like like an like an art art gallery but it's really really tricky um, I think it's really important because also what the research shows from purely from a sort of educational outcome perspective is that where you do get um, parent parental buy-in and where schools do work closely with their parents so they're they're engaged and they're inv- involved then outcomes for for children you know increase rapidly so it's something to, to aspire to but um, yeah I think you're right between cultural organisations, schools and particular communities, there are these barriers um, that need to be understood um, in, in order to, to be overcome. Well, in a sense, schools have a role to play there in enabling students to have the feeling or enabling people, not just because I think that access to art is probably just a good thing anyway, that broad access, and we talk about broad access, you have to question those things and wonder why a broad access to art is good, but not just because a broad access to art might be in itself a good thing, but because we're in danger of creating a an ex, a society which excludes and includes, and I suspect there's an underlying tendency for that to be the, to be the, the desired case, that, that in, a, in a sense... Uh, art has been perceived as being a differentiator between us and them. Just as generations of uh, working class kids have left schools, having understood by the nature of the grading system or the way in which GCSE, English literature or or art was taught, was that that was not for them. They had in fact acquired an assessment in their own inability to engage with art, literature, creative writing, drawing or whatever that creativity in a sense one of the ways in which schools actually actively don't fail to teach creativity is they actively fail to to de-creativity people <laughs> they create a sense in which um uh, creativity has become uh, out of the reach of your ordinary life so now you must be released into society as it were uh, um, as a passive receiver of culture and not as a creator or engage with culture. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I think what's happened is um, thinking about some of the research we've done in primary schools around creativity, um, 
and thinking in particular around writing and creative writing. If you look at the way that's assessed at the moment, it's very, very narrow, focus on technical aspects, spelling, punctuation and grammar. And it kind of means that, you know, in terms of the, the teaching, the way that that is taught in schools is quite prescriptive. It's like these are the words you need to um, include. I would like you to use, for example, fronted adverbials. So it's not about content. It's not about idea development. And um, the in terms of feedback and redrafting, again, that tends to be technical. It tends to be about uh, changing those spellings rather than thinking about, OK, actually, how might we improve this piece of writing by developing this character? How might we you know, show something about this character through through the use of dialogue? Would it be beneficial to change the point of view we're using in this piece? Um, so that kind of radical redrafting is precluded by the, you know, the, the narrow curriculum and, and the, the testing regime. I'm just thinking my, my, my oldest um, daughter is doing her GCSEs at the moment, so that's quite interesting. I mean, the, the amount of knowledge that she needs to learn, luckily she's, you know, got really, really good memory almost photographic memory so she can remember this stuff and i think about kids who 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 can't remember that you know they're at a real disadvantage but um going through the creative writing paper with her um which tends to be either an image or a statement and then um, within test conditions uh the children have to you know write a few sides of paper in response to that it just seems a crazy way of testing creative writing so you know so so i think you're right i think a lot of things would have to change as well i think the way we assess uh would have to change how do you assess creativity well i think it's much more it, it, it is quite complicated so it's easier to measure things like spelling um rather than thinking about the content of the piece of writing um but that, you know but but i think teachers would enjoy uh the professional development um that um, would go along with that in terms of thinking of, about assessing uh, the quality of, um, for example, creative writing. Yeah. And that raises the issue of uh, educating the whole person, educating people for life and giving them not only the, the uh, skills that they might be able to utilise effectively in the marketplace or might be good for our economy, but it will also be good for their own mental health their own sense of their own identity as a person uh, that is capable and empowered. And uh, that, I think, uh, is something which we, we, when we talk about creativity, when we talk about the engagement with art and what the artist can bring in the school, is, is, is almost as important, more important, if we were to redirect our attention to the notion of schools as places for educating people to be fulfilled, to have fulfilled lives and not just prosperous lives. The tendency I've observed in my career is away from things like rich tasks, away from integrated topic based, away from um, uh, integrated subjects and project work and empowerment as see, seeing those kind of uh, as, 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 as not directed more efficiently enough, as time not directed efficiently enough. And so I wonder if the, what the prospect is of a return to and it would be a return, I think, to that kind of approach to learning. Yeah, absolutely. So, and I think you know, to look at the, we'll look at what underpins that in terms of neoliberalism. Um, so it's that free market economy. In in England, that was around academisation and 
the um, ac accountability measures with, with Ofsted. Um, so you, once you set up that kind of system where schools are going to be measured on exam results, uh, where schools are going to be compared, where those schools that do better are going to be given more resources to lead multi-academy trusts, to lead training in specific geographical um, locations, then what you are going to get is is schools playing to, playing that game as best they can in order to be as successful as they can. Yeah, I think there is an impact on our children and on things like their creativity and, uh, dare I say, and on, on, on their well-being. This programme has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go wellbeing and mental health programme will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and wellbeing tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. You are listening to the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs. My guest this week, Professor Tom Dobson of York St John's University. And we are discussing research into creativity in schools. Yeah, I think, I think it's been going the wrong way uh, for, for a number of years now. And, and, and teachers that I've spoken to um, a lot of them will say that they feel it's been going the wrong way as well, um, mainly due to academisation, so that feeling that um, as a teacher you have less autonomy, um, that, that lessons are, are mandated um, and that, that that therefore puts a squeeze on creativity. But as I, as I in, um, alluded to earlier, I think um, these things come in cycles and I think the OECD's recent emphasis on um, student agency and and creative thinking skills will at some point um, lead to to policy reform. I think the danger is what you also alluded to is then that becomes another way of uh, another thing to measure and another point of comparison between schools who then might take quite a, a kind of narrow approach to to what creativity is. Um, so that, yeah, that, that that is the danger. But I, I think that will depend how on how it's articulated within within those within those schools. I think within you know we can talk we can talk neoliberalism, talk academisation. We still have within that system we can still and we do have fantastic schools, fantastic teachers who 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 do provide those opportunities despite all of that um, for, for children. So I think a you know we. I can't see neoliberalisation changing or academisation changing. I can see policy changing, and I, I can see those that policy change providing greater affordances for um, senior leaders and teachers to provide uh, young people with opportunities to um, develop develop their creativity. I'm sure you're absolutely right. There's, there's lots of teachers listening to this right now who are doing all sorts of interesting, creative, project-based things that are engaging students in work that's the nature of the teaching profession it will into a tendency towards a desire to create fun enjoyment engagement you you can't teach without wanting to do that and i guess if the neoliberalist context 
uh, of marketplaces and schools in competition with each other and so on isn't going anywhere soon, at least in its own terms. It might embrace, as you say, from the OECD, it might embrace creativity since the economy we live in uh, is clearly uh, a creative industries economy. Uh, so in its own terms, and if for only instrumental reasons, we might be able to convince, uh, well, society might convince itself that it would be a rather good, beneficial thing for us all if students left school with the ability to engage creatively uh, in the world, of, uh, in, in, in an economic sense. Absolutely. And I think it's, I mean, you know, we started this interview with me describing how, how within this piece of research, teachers um, tend to believe that having a fixed mindset and a growth mindset were, were mutually exclusive and I don't think they are and that's what artistic practitioners sort of show through their experience I don't think you know creativity for um, personal development need be uh, mutually exclusive for creativity for economic gain um, you know both can run uh, together um, in tandem as it were and you know also I think the Ofsted um, are highly criticised recently in this country um, as a way of holding uh, holding schools to account. An interesting aspect of their inspection regime, of course, is personal development, which is one of the the, the, the key areas. And you know that can only that emphasis in terms of you know what constitutes a good school in England, and it's not just around attainment, but around the personal development of all the um, all the children within that school is, is key and, it, and is, a, is quite a progressive move within, you know, within a wider neoliberal context. Yeah, that is encouraging and in line really with what we were saying earlier about how within the context of the current times, it's still an education profession, profession and people will still want to, to be, obviously inspectors included and the, the whole machinery of school inspection will focus, will want to have very noble aims. In a sense, that education is a very noble aiming sort of enterprise. Uh, I'm a bit worried where I think about schools, though, is the, the kind of pinboard, not the pinboard, the display board effect, you know, the glossy display board, which is covered in um, positive messages and maps and information to inspire students, which students rarely, rarely look at. In fact, it's for the parents to observe on parents' evening or visitors to the school to conclude that the place must be a vibrant and creative place. <laughs> In other words, the, the, the presentation of we are a creative place may be, may be well, offset by the context of all the things we said that tend to mitigate against genuine personal autonomy, creativity, independence and opportunity to... Uh, to be creative. We've used the term creativity a lot because we all of us would agree it's like, you know, we hope students can be creative, want them to be creative as a creative school, creative classroom, all those things. Is there any real agreement as to what we mean by the term creativity? I mean, I quite, I quite like Anna Craft's um, definition of creativity. So she talks about small c creativity and big c creativity. And big c creativity is, you know, where you make a contribution um, to society that might change the way people think about something or where you bring out um, a new novel which is 
not derivative, but wholly seminal, um, like James Joyce with Ulysses. So, so, so that kind of thing. And then small c creativity is where you do something that is original and, and new for you um, in relation to what you have done before. So where you begin to um, see things differently, where you begin to, um, yeah, I mean, I, I quite like the concept of defamiliarization. So this is the ab ability to to see things um, to see things differently. And I think there was a scholar, a Russian scholar in the 1930s, who said that was actually the purpose of the arts to enable people to see things differently. But um, I, su I suppose small c creativity for me would be an individual um, having um, receiving that that kind of pleasure that you get from making a new discovery, from seeing something differently, differently. And the pleasure that you get from that, I think, is what gives you that feeling of well-being. So, you know, ever since I've ever since I've been in my early 20s, I've um, as, as a hobby, I've been writing creatively. I've been lucky enough to do some of that within my job as well. Um, but that create that process of creative writing of discovering things about writing and about myself through that creative process is something which has just made me feel better about myself um and giving me better mental health and well-being i would argue so yeah i think it's a very personal thing yes i think creativity is a very can be a very individual thing it feels very individual it feels like uh it's something of inspiration we use terms like inspiration or touched by a muse and ideas do appear to sort of appear, as it were, almost miraculously in our minds as we stare at a blank page and where did that, where did that brilliant idea come from? But I think also society, culturally, we like the idea of the, the artist in the garret, the individual labouring away on their own, or the lone genius. Whereas a lot of creativity, indeed, the creativity of of artistic or scientific exploration is often built on the shoulders of thousands of other people making small incremental improvements uh, and creativity is largely necessarily highly organic and, and involved in a wide range of teamwork so I wonder if you've explored this idea of how schools can encourage a kind of more organic creative uh, form of creativity no no and I think and you know that kind of collective creativity is really important I mean uh, so something that I have been interested in recently as well is the idea of co-creation. Um, so um, at Leeds Beckett University, worked with, with colleagues, uh, including Dr. Lisa Stevenson, on some co-creation projects where we, we wrote novels with children who were un underrepresented in children's literature. And so I think co-creation actually is, is something, it's kind of flavour of the month at the moment with funders and with arts organisations, but it's something we could be seeing more of um, in schools. And in terms of future projects, you, you, you mentioned you're going to ask me earlier. The one that we're, we're, we're looking at is a co-creation project um, with parents and their children, um, looking at, looking at um, what can be gained from parents and children writing together. We're at quite early stages within with this one. We got some experts together at York St John last Friday, uh, so people from sort of with mental health expertise, um, people who work for the NHS, people who worked in schools, people who were artists, 
so it's kind of transdisciplinary but i suppose one of the things we might be looking at is is whether um, children and parents writing creatively together not only might improve creative writing from a sort of school perspective but might might also develop mutuality improve relationships one idea was that perhaps we looked at how it might um, improve attachment um, you know in relation to Bowlby's attachment theory so that's that's a project that's in early stages with Professor Abby Curtis who's Professor of Creative Writing at York St John and Dr Paige Davis who's a psychology background and Jane Collins and Paul Eckert so there's five of us in that project so I'm looking forward to, to how that's developing other projects I'm involved with going to continue working with um, Inactus UK and their Next Gen Leaders programme to try and capture in research some of what they do in, in, in secondary schools using project-based based learning and participatory action research and, and try and capture it in a way that's participatory as well so it involves the young people in that research programme. The other project that I've got is maybe slightly tangential in terms of your audience uh john but a lot of um we've got a course which is a professional doctorate in education which i lead at york st john and a lot of teachers do that course teachers who are interested in investigating their own practice as teachers and are interested in doing research into their own practice normally they're normally doing doing it because they want to improve out improve outcomes for students or improve the way in which um their students participate in their lessons maybe around well-being so um, it's a really great course to be leading and um, what I'm particularly interested in is when when the EDD students come to write up their thesis they tend to um, follow a, a traditional academic approach it's like there's a bit of a writing frame about how you should do your academic thesis. And I'm, I'm quite interested in, in giving, affording those teachers who, who are writing the theses a bit more freedom to be creative in the way that they write that. So it comes back to creativity again, because I kind of feel that particularly because what's being researched is live practice. So it's teachers reflecting upon capturing what actually happens in their classroom. Then to write it in a traditional academic way, which is very, very linear, very impersonal is not actually that appropriate it doesn't accurately represent the lived experience of the teachers themselves and the children within within the classroom i'm I'm also interested in promoting participatory approaches where the teachers aren't doing research to the children in the class where where the teachers are part of that research process and then thinking about what that might look like in terms of the way that the research is represented and, and written up uh, so that's the kind of third area uh, that I'm working on at the moment. Yeah. One of my recent guests was uh, Dr. Jennifer Chung, uh, who teaches at University College London and has written a fascinating book studying the Finnish education system. She herself taught in Finland for a while. And of course, Finland is famous for having this extremely well thought of education system with the outcomes that are measured as being very successful on the PISA scores, one of the observations she made was that the connection between academic research into teaching and teaching itself were much narrower in in Finland, as every teacher was encouraged to conduct during their teaching career some kind of academic research, and indeed links between universities and schools were much closer. And so one of the one of the things I've been lucky enough to do in this programme 
and this podcast is to talk to academics. And of course, there's a lot, as you're proving today, an awful lot of fascinating research going into what successful teaching looks like, what learning looks like, the connections between the brain and learning and so on. And yet, does that percolate down into the classroom? And can, making a connection between the researcher, the PhD student, and actual practice must be quite challenging. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, so. one of the problems you've got with with um, doing a doctorate is that the, the writing that comes out of it, particularly if it's very traditional, is quite esoteric, academic, it's impenetrable. Uh, a copy of it will go to the British Library. No one will ever read it. Um, so I think one of the... Th- one of the things that we're thinking about is is a bit more freedom in terms of the format um, of how it's written. Um, a big focus on audience. Who are you actually writing that for? Now, obviously, you have to be writing if you if you're doing a doctorate. You have to be writing for the examiners. Um, you have to be meeting the learning outcomes that are stipulated by the university. But our argument is that you should also be writing for key stakeholders. So. That might be teachers within the school, might be senior leadership, it might be policy makers who can pick that up, understand what, what, what's going on there and, 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 and make sense of it. Um, you could also argue, and I would argue, that you, if, you're, if your thesis is about children, you should also be writing about children. So that might be that, so it might be that there's a section of it or a reiteration of part of it that is aimed at that particular audience. Um, and I think that's that, that's been the problem uh, traditionally in academia is that it's, I mean, just what, what you're saying about art galleries before, you know, it, it, there are these barriers that are that are put up um, and it become can become quite esoteric. So, yeah, that, um, that that's that's something we're, we're looking at um, and, and encouraging students on our EDD program to think about who is the audience and what kind of language is appropriate uh, Therefore, Well, that, Tom, brings us to an end. Uh, the hour has flown by. And thank you so much for giving me and the listeners to this podcast an insight into the kind of research that's going on at St John's York University and across the country in all in the university departments of education where research of a fascinating kind is being carried out. So thank you so much for this insight into that world, into the world of research. And those listeners who want to find out more about Tom's uh, work and research papers can find that on the website of the university or in other academic journals. And there's a few links here on the podcast. So, Tom, thank you so much for joining me. That's great, John. I've really enjoyed uh, talking to you. It's been a very varied um, discussion there and um, some great questions. So, So thank you very much. episode of the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs. I hope you've enjoyed my discussion with Professor Tom Dobson of York St John's University as we explored not only the nature of creativity and what teachers can learn from artists and possibly vice versa, but also the way in which higher education is exploring issues of creativity and of bridging the gap between research and schools. It was, a, as Tom pointed out, a wide-ranging discussion And if you want to listen to it again, or you want to listen to parts of it again, you can find it on Spotify and multiple other platforms. Thank you so much for listening.
It's time for a fresh start to language learning. Pearson edXL's new student-centered French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs cater to the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying. Rooted in learned language knowledge, their assessments are transparent and accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills. Through inclusive and relatable content, the new Pearson edXL MFL GCSEs build a shared cultural capital that helps students develop an understanding of and appreciation for the wider world. Find out more at go.pearson.com forward slash MFL GCSE 24. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.